Hello and welcome to another episode of our show. A reminder that we are on Patreon, so for as low as a dollar a month, you can support us in funding what we do so that we can get better technology and continue to produce content that we love and, and that you enjoy. Today's guests are Jeremy Allen and Graham Fry. They are, they are the host and producer of the podcast Oxford Lives, which is a show that looks at the people living in Oxford, which is a, a very popular university town in England. Uh, we talk about their show as well as their experiences during COVID. Graham talks about uh, OCD, or excuse me, Jer Jeremy talks about his OCD and how he's uh, combated that. We, we really just have a wonderful uh, conversation about so many different topics. Again, just about the experiences of living uh, during a pandemic, what's coming out of it. Uh, we also talk about culture and shows on Netflix. And uh, there's a lot on this. If you hear something that you like or that you're like, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard, please be sure to send us a message. We're on Instagram as well as our blog, probablywrong.ca. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoy the show. Uncut, uncensored, and unfiltered. This is an open mind. You're listening to I'm Probably Wrong About Everything. Hello and welcome to another episode of our show. We have with us Graham Fry and uh, and Jeremy. Um, Sorry, Jeremy, what, what's your Jeremy last name? Jeremy Allen. Jeremy. Jeremy Allen. That's a very British, uh, that's an author's name right there. And, and did I say that right, Jer uh, Graham Fry? Yeah, yeah, Graham Fry. Okay. All right. So, hello and welcome to another episode of our show. We're joined with uh, Graham Fry and Jeremy Allen of the podcast Oxford Lives. And it's a very interesting show in that they speak to people that are from Oxford and their, their eccentric lives. One of the guests they had on was Bernie Sanders' brother, which uh, I never got around to listen to that one yet, but I heard the one that you two guys had, and it really kind of gave me a sense of what Oxford is. Can you tell us a little bit about Oxford, the community there? Yeah, I mean, I mean certainly Oxford's a, a town 40 miles west of London in the south of England, um, but of course it's mostly famous for the university. The university sort of dominates the centre of the town because it's in lots and lots of old buildings because they were they're basically medieval and and from the Middle Ages and um, so if you look at it on Oxford Online that's what you'll see the, the the sort of old old stone buildings dating back to God knows when um, but it, we we had a guest on our uh, show a guy called Richard O Smith who's a local writer and he maintains that there are three sides to Oxford. There's the uh, there's a university which people talk about gown. That's the gown part of Oxford. Then there's town, which is people like Jeremy and I who live here and <laughs> living here and do everything. And then the third part is the visit the number the visitors because of course it gets millions of visitors every year. So it's a quintessentially in some ways college town, but it's also um, it's got a whole life of its own. I mean, there's a car plant there, for instance. You know the mini cars. You see the minis, the BMW minis, they're all built in Oxford. So, um, so we've got a car plant on the edge of town and we've also got a whole, a whole range of different people who live here doing all sorts of things from research to 
yeah, whatever. Um, and uh, and then there's people like Jeremy and I who've moved here from different parts of the UK. And, and there are people, I mean, I always think if you walk into the centre of Oxford, if you haven't heard five or six different languages by the time you get to town in 10 minutes, it's not been a great day. You know, there are so many people <laughs> in the world here. And I'm sure there are lots and lots of Canadians here as well. So, um, uh, but uh, yeah, so that's a brief, about, town of about 200,000 people, are we, Jeremy and Pete? I think like? it's slightly low. It, it's, it's so weird. And I was going to say, it's a very transient population. So right. the population is very hard to measure. I think it's about 160,000, but it's difficult to gauge because people just come here. I mean, a lot of people do work at the university or in something affiliated. They come over and do a, uh, an MA or a PhD or a research thesis, or they come in over to lecture a couple of months. Um, and it's not just Oxford University. For a start, there's another university here called Brooks. Um, mm. So add another 28,000 students to the, to the Oxford package. Um, everything that entails. Um, but there's also loads of business colleges, language schools, um, six-form colleges, and just regular school. I mean, there's so much education here, um, sort of capitalising on the Oxford name and cachet. Uh, but it's got a very transient population. And one of the problems we've had is actually most of our guests have been people who've moved to Oxford rather than... They've grown up here, and we've tried to set the record straight on that um, with our last guest, didn't we? I think with Chris, Chris Heap. We thought we what we want. We want somebody who's lived here all their life. Like, but even he moved here when he was five from Ireland. So it's just it's just difficult because there is there is a native population here. Um, but I, th I think what it is with with the transient people, <laughs> I make them sound like gypsies. But with the transient people, they've tended to move here for professional reasons. Right. So they're usually quite. I'd know upwardly mobile people, very keen to sell themselves, and mm. so they're not shy in coming forward. Um, uh, another problem we've had is like is getting the people we want because people. I, I just assume everybody wants to talk about themselves, but that's not the case. A lot of people are quite reserved. But um, when I put a call out, because part of my background is from the theatre world, and those people don't have any sort of compunction about thrusting themselves in the limelight and selling their wares. Um, yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it. Actually, no, we've, we've had a couple of actors. We've had, we, we want somebody else. We want a scientist or we want a, we, we want a, a dustman or just a regular person. Right, um, right. Yeah. Um, there's a few leads we've been pursuing, which is quite sort of typical Oxford. Like uh, I've been trying to get, there's a, there's a game here called play called Aunt Sally, which is like a form of Skittles. Um, and I had heard of it, but... Apparently, it's only ever been played in Oxfordshire and a couple of other places. It's it's a it's a sport that's confined to Oxfordshire. It's largely played played in the back of pubs. So I've been trying to get the local Aunt Sally. Um, it sounds really weird. Uh, the local Aunt Sally Society to appear, but again, they're just a little bit a little bit wary and and shy. And the same with people from the local history groups. It's just it's 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 a bit of a challenge to get people who aren't you know from outside and and who specialize in other things we we kind of want more locals don't we because part of the reason we set up the podcast was to connect the community and let the one side of the community talk to the other anyway i've kind of gone off well oh, that's totally fine i mean as you're yeah. speaking i was thinking about yeah like is oxford so in places in the country there's 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 uh, development sort of research development areas like in the in in california it's silicon valley mm -hmm. so is oxford kind of like this specific sort of place where 
you know, people go there, they don't necessarily raise their families, but they work on their education and then they go elsewhere or, or is well, it, is it, is there a like, resurgence? In sort they of, might stay here for the rest of their lives, but right. they're not from here. They haven't got, they're not, they're, they don't come from the culture. So I guess it's a bit like London in that respect. There's a sort of what you might call a metropolitan elite or not, not necessarily a metropolitan elite, but, um, I mean, like uh, you're saying, Silicon Valley, there's, there's a science complex here that's away from the university. So a lot of scientific research gets done here, but also the university itself, because the vaccine was, was one of the vaccines was developed here. Wow. Um, but the town and gown divide is huge. Um, I mean, I guess it's the same in every university town, but here it's, it's massive. Um, I worked for Oxford University Press. Um, the department I worked in was customer services. So I guess there were people there um, because a lot, of, for a start, it wasn't representative of the city in any way. I wouldn't have thought so. Um, when I got on the bus, I'll be frank, when I got on the bus in the morning, I guess one in three people on that bus was black. When I got to um, the main building in town where I worked, uh, the only black people seemed to work on the security gate. So for that, it was just constant. That It just felt weird. Um, but in my office, it was a little bit different because it was accounts. So it wasn't really part of it. It was accounts and customer service. So it wasn't really part of the, the academic world. So you got a few more local people. Um so it was like a microcosm within a microcosm or a right. bubble within a bubble. And there were people in that office who had the local accent and lived there all their lives. They'd never visited a college, hmm. uh, which is the main tourist attraction. There's, there's what is it, 39 colleges now, Graham? Yeah, I think. yeah 39. Just, yeah. They've just added one. So there's 39 colleges. These the beautiful buildings, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years of history. And, they've never, and, and, you know, there's people around where I live who've never visited a college. And um, it is like two separate worlds. Um, it, um, um, tourists who come here will get one view of Oxford because they'll be, they'll be in a little guest house near the city centre and they'll be, you know, they'll be doing the museums and visiting the colleges and, and uh, doing, you know, doing the bus ride. Um, and they won't see the, the council estates on the, on the outskirts of the town because that's all been shifted outwards. Uh, to the periphery so you've got a town that has um the top 20 percent income bracket and the lowest 20 percent income bracket and not a lot in between um yeah, so that's, that's, polarity an, is, yeah. that's an interesting point because it's it, it is a it, in some ways it's a slightly strange place because mm. because of its history and because of the academic institutions here but but it's a lovely place to live i mean this is the Point. I mean, Jeremy, well, you can be critical of your own place, but but it, I'm not. I love it here. On and um, you know, no, no. I mean, we both are. We that that's partly why we set up the podcast to get other people's views on. Because Jeremy and I would sit there and, th and say to each other, occasionally have a moan about sit in the pub with a beer and have a moan about because you, you, you can do that in your own town, you know, in your own town. But then we thought, well, neither of us are actually from here, and and you know, we've had different histories and then we most of the people we know sort of drifted drifted into Oxford for some reason or other and um so it, we were trying to get a bit more under the skin of the mm. of the city and find out it, 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 the way it ticks I'm not sure if we've done that because we everybody we've interviewed has been so different <laughs> <laughs> funny funny how that is your, yeah. your goal is to try and understand the pulse you know get your finger on the pulse of this this community this culture and then it ends up opening all these other doors. 
Um, I mean, but there are there aren't many cultures here, aren't there? I mean, right. there's a very large right. West Indian population here um, who arrived in the 50s to, to work in the car factories. And the car factory was huge at the BMW factory, uh, which used to be the Mini factory. I mean, the Mini was developed here. Um, yeah. But before that, it was Morris uh, Morris Motors, which was one of the biggest uh, car car manufacturers in the world. And that, that employed a huge proportion of the town population. Uh, town's population i mean it's it's different now there's still a fair few thousand people who work there but it's not because it's all automated and mechanized and computerized you know and there tends to be if you go there because i've done a tour of the plant uh, most people who work there are temp or temporary workers mm. and those people come from all over the world so that that the base of that the the, the core of that has has vanished over the decades so so like any kind of town it sounds like Okay, so in Vancouver, uh, Graham was talking about uh, um, how he was on the, the train and he was going across to, to the, the border, uh, the U.S. border. And I'm like, I have never been on that train. So you could live in a town and yeah. these things that it's like, what, as a tourist, you got to do this, you got to do that, uh, that when you live there, you're like, oh, yeah, I'll get around to that. But then you never experience it. No, it's true. It's absolutely true. So if you were a tourist, because it, it, and again, there's this huge tourist population, which we'll talk about in yeah. terms of COVID. But what are like the, the, usually the top three things that somebody has to do when they visit Oxford? Well, here, I've got to defer to Jeremy, because one of his <laughs> professions is he's a tour guide. Yes. You know? <laughs> and he was talking about i'm like a tour guide during covid like damn that's <laughs> yeah. that's gonna come up that's gonna come up well i had about four months four months work last year because um right. i mean i work for a company called city sightseeing and we do bus tours but we also do walking tours i tend to do more walking tours these days but um for most of last year the bus tours didn't run um, I've just had the word we're starting back on April the 1st doing walking tours, but we're not putting guides on the buses yet because you, you just can't get the social distancing. Um, well, until it's a bit safer anyway. Um, but what I would recommend, and this isn't just because it's my living, but uh, whenever I go to a foreign city, I do a, like a, a round robin tour, um, usually on a bus to get an overview and to get the lie of the land um, and get a general sense of it. And those tickets are usually good for about 24 to 48 hours and you can then use it as a taxi service. Oxford um, isn't a very big place. I mean, you can walk from any one place to another within 10 minutes from A to B, wherever, really, in regards to the centre right, and everything yes. you want to see. It's all quite accessible. Um, but, yeah, get your bearings. So I do a bus tour, then I do a walking tour, and you can usually get a ticket that covers both. In fact, I know you can because <laughs> I deal with those people. <laughs> And then I go and see a couple of the colleges, maybe two or three colleges, mm. um, Christchurch or Morden, one of the bigger colleges. Um, Jeremy, I mean, is it worth just is it is it worth just saying to Rob that the structure of the University of Oxford is very different because it's not one monolithic; it's yeah. made of thirty nine colleges which are independent or quasi independent. So they're all completely different. They have their own admissions policy. They have their own yeah. So so yeah. Oxford and, and sorry to interrupt because this is what I was trying to figure out. It, it's like a pan coalition of universities. Is that right? Because when you see Oxford University Press, because I went to university and I gave you guys a lot of money. Uh, but is is that actually is that just in reference to like all these kind of universities? No, well the, the, the technical name is the University of Oxford, and it's comprised of 39 individual get, colleges. Okay. 
they call it the collegiate system. Cambridge is the same. Mm. I think I think Harvard and Yale might be the same because I've had American tourists say it's a very similar feel. Um, but yeah, it is very confusing. It's very confusing because I, I've got tourists, and I'll take it for granted, I had tourists halfway through the tour say, okay, when are we actually going to see the university? I said, well, you've been looking at it for the last... <laughs> it's here. It's like, So you go into the, the whole of the, the city centre is the university, but it's mixed up with other stuff, with shops and banks and restaurants. So you might have a... You know, you might have a, a delicatessen and then you have a college and then you have a bank and then you have another college, then you have a library, whatever. Um, but, it, yeah, and each college is usually hundreds of years old and, that, like Graham says, has its own history, has its own traditions, has its own admission policy and is pretty much autonomous. There is an administrative body which supervises the whole, um, but it's very loose they're pretty they're pretty independent of each other and for the most part the student will do all of his lessons within that one college it's just maybe if it's the old one or two specialized subject they'll go to a lecture somewhere else but it's mostly confined to the college if they're there they most of them have halls of residence where at least for the first year you'll be lodging within that college you might need to find um some accommodation elsewhere after that but but it will it won't be in another college it'll be um um first year on campus second year in a in a in a shared house somewhere or well, you know private accommodation because it's it's really interesting the history and uh sorry i didn't get around to that original question of the top three places but we'll return there the history of universities where where i live um and graham might might know this is it's very young right mm. uh in, in terms of Western history. Obviously, there were indigenous people living here before us, and they were here a lot longer than us. But as for settlers from you know England, all over the world, we've been here about 150 years. So the universities here are very young, right? And and a lot of them, they don't really have that sort of. There's something about history and culture that just kind of go hand in hand. You get that sort of, you know, because we've been. We've been the rugby team here for a hundred years, right? There's that sort of connection to the past. Whereas when I went to university, I was like, I, I didn't really ha understand that, right? There wasn't that prestige, I guess. So for somebody who goes to Oxford, is that like, is that like a, you know, that's my Jersey kind of, this is my identity. That's something that to be proud of. I, yeah, I mean, yeah. The other thing you sort of need to understand about the the sort of Oxford and and you as one of you know it's one of the best known universities in yes. the world. Yeah. So they kind of one of one of the things I do is I coach some of the students as they're coming towards the end to talk about where they're going to go. I you know they all want to go into banking and consultancy. Yeah. <laughs> not all, sorry, I'm, I'm, but but that's my background, you know, sort of particularly management consulting. So um, I, I sort of sit down with them and say, right, help them develop their CVs introduce them to people that sort of thing but it, it's quite interesting there is I was talking to one of my students and she comes from very working class background mm. and we'd have sessions together and in fact she she had to one one she couldn't come to one session because she had to go back home because her, her brother had been arrested and she had to get it out of jail you know? oh, yeah so you tend to think of Oxford as these um as it very um sort of very high echelon people coming from rich backgrounds right. And there is a bit part of that, yeah. yeah. But but there is all, but people, but lots of other people come here as well. And the, the university, 
you know, does, I think, a pretty good job of attracting people from blue-collar background, etc. But once you've been here, there's a certain... And you can tell... I, I, I mentioned this girl particularly because she was... Um, uh, she was sort of... Has a snobbery about the university. Mm -hmm. I was a portion to her background, if you know what I mean. She comes from a very modest family. Um, but the fact she was here, she walks around with a spring in her step. Yeah. It's... It's a I maybe people feel the same. I, I didn't go here. I didn't go to this university. I, I went to the University of Liverpool. But the um, uh, but the people who've been here, it seemed it does seem to just the Oxford name give them a bit of a a boost in life, you know, to where they might end up. I don't know what your view on this is, Jeremy. I just, what is that? Uh, um, well, I think the, I mean they are getting better at it because it's been traditionally about fifty percent private education, fifty percent state education. Oh. Um, I don't know what your system is in Canada, but uh, privately educated, which confusingly is often called public school. Like if you've been to a public school, it means you had a private education and your parents have paid a lot of money um, uh, in order to do that, to give you an advantage. And that's 7% of the population, but, but up until fairly recently, because they've tried to mm. tweak that now, but up until recently, it was roughly 50% uh, Oxford, Oxbridge students who had a private education. Um, I think if you do come from a more working-class background, you can struggle to fit in socially, uh, right. not just economically, but um, I, I have known of people who, who've had, you know, struggled to fit in with the, you know, the, the habits and the mores and, and the, um, I guess, the way people carry themselves, you know, and their, yeah. their assumptions. I did hear another story, and this was from one of our guests, Simon Image, who said he had a, he's got a friend who went for an interview, he was a working class guy from Liverpool, went for an interview at Balliol College. And they basically said, well, most of the students here are from pretty uh, public school backgrounds. We don't really think you fit in. Why don't you try this college down the road? Mm. Um, oh, God, Frank, maybe they're doing him a favour, but I, I, I found it quite shocking, really. Um, <laughs> but in terms of the atmosphere, in terms of growing up here, I mean, it's quite, um, I went to a, what they call a red brick university, which is quite a modern university, De, De Montfort in Leicester. But here it is like another world. It is quite rarefied. And I mean, it is actually aesthetically beautiful as well. Uh, most of the colleges follow a similar sort of architectural design. There's a quad in the middle with grass square. And it is, I don't know if you've seen the movie Chariots of Fire, where they run around the quad. I, 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 I'm very familiar with the theme song. <laughs> well it's a bit like that i mean it is you yeah. could be in the 1920s or the even the 1800s yeah. um and it's even though it's the city center if you go into one of these colleges it's very very tranquil it's very well maintained it's beautiful to look at um there's not actually that many students comparatively so you are part of this rarefied world um and i think if you talk about the people who are in government now many of them went from came from Eton or another top public school straight to Oxford. And the look of Eton is very similar to Oxford or the look of Harrow or any of these, these top public schools. It's this sort of limestone or sandstone, beautifully kept building, uh, beautiful grounds. And it's very, I don't want to use the word twee, but it is quite archaic um, and oldie worldly and, and privileged. And so if you've come, if you've grown up going to one of these schools, you then, because of your um, advantageous primary education, got a place at Oxford or Cambridge, and you've gone straight into the uh, into 
into government, into the Houses of Parliament, because basically no one do a job anymore. They go straight into being a career politician. <laughs> you haven't really engaged with the wider world, and I think that maybe that's the problem. You may have the best education in the world, but you don't know what normal people have to go through or average people have to go through. That is an excellent point, Matt. I mean, like, I was very fortunate in where I live when I was growing up in my class. You know, not everybody looked like me, if you, if you get what I'm saying. Like, there, there was walks of all life, and I think having that experience at a young age is, you know, so totally advantageous because th- then you start to see, okay, you know, there's different cultures than my own and I can actually get a lot out of that. But when you have this sort of, and, and I can't speak to Oxford because obviously I've never been there and I have no idea, but when you have an elitist culture and it keeps recycling the same people through, you're not really going to get any uh, changes. Like, have you ever read that book, Guns, Germs, and Steel? Oh, yeah, yeah, no. yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Excellent. But yeah, yeah, about what, how, what has actually made the big changes in history, you know, what, what they've been, yeah, exactly. And, 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 and some of the big changes are when we actually, like, have people of different perspectives all sharing. But when we're all just, like, uh, you know, uh, ancient China, it was very closed off. So influences couldn't get in there. So they actually remained quite stagnant while the Western world was, you know, colonizing the known world, you know, in parenthesis. Mm-hmm. And then it had this expansion, explosion in culture. But when you have this sort of stagnant, same faces, same kind of backgrounds, is you actually don't get as much innovation. But then when you start including people from working class backgrounds yeah. that, that you're mentioning, you get this kind of um, diverse, it's like a diversification effect. Anyways, you're able to think different and problem solve different. Well, this is, that, is what happened in, the, in yeah. the Second World War when the Americans came into the war. Or, but I won't say Americans because I know you Canadians have <laughs> a bit of an issue. When the US came into the war, I mean, you were part of our army, Canada, That's Commonwealth. Right. But anyway, in certainly in regards of Britain, um, they noticed this stagnation because what happened in the US, um, they took a load of, because uh, they had this huge sort of, and very quickly developed a huge military industrial might. They were arms dealers. They were arms dealers. U.S. with arms dealers, yeah. But but they elevated, they fast-tracked these people into senior officers' positions. Uh, So they could come from any background, but because they had that sort of innovative mind, they didn't have that restrictive class structure. And what they noticed here was there there was a sort of tiered structure in the army, and there was a mutual kind of... A distant, well, there was a distance and there was a grudge, grudging thing, and, and uh, you know, more than my job's worth attitude and a hangover from the class struggles of the 1930s that was kind of alien to the US soldiers coming over to northern France. It was like uh, you get um, an infantryman and a, a US tank would come along and say, Could you clear the road? Could you clear those obstacles out of the way so I can drive this tank? <laughs> I say, Well, that's not my job. And I was shocked at this attitude. Um, and there was a lot of, you know, but basically the talent wasn't advanced because they were stuck in this very rigid sort of right class structure, I guess. Well, even think how World War One was fought. Like they were they were sending uh, cavalry charges against machine guns. It's like, what yeah. the hell are you thinking, right? And yeah. and and that's why. Uh, again, you know, like I I can go off on random tangents, of course, but. <laughs> But we do have to adapt. We can be so stuck in the way that we do things that we don't adapt and we suffer as a consequence while, the, while other people... Yeah, yeah, no, 
no, precisely so. And well, I think uh, this is a, a symptom of, or you could see the same effect with um, any of the elite um, education establishments anywhere in the world. I'm sure people would say the same about Harvard or Yale or, or the Grand Ecole in Paris. And, um, uh, you know, we've got these deep roots in history and they produce a certain sort of person at the end, right. no matter where they came from. And um, as like Jeremy said, the, the, particularly the UK, as and you've got to say suffered at one level, but there has been a whole, the political elite has tended yeah. to same system and the same thing happened in France they go through yeah yeah I, I, I lived for several years in the US as well um you know six seven years I think it was during the 80s and early 90s and um um anyone who thinks the US doesn't have a, a class system is it's very a caste system <laughs> yeah exactly so it you know what the, the point is I think if you were to go you I think you get the same sort of people churned out at Oxford and Cambridge as you get from Harvard, you get from Yale, you get from the Grand Ecole in Paris, where all the French presidents of the top French have all been through the same schools. They, you know, so um, from uh, so, and I think it, it's it's general speaking, it's not great. You know, what I mean, we do need a, a diversification, and we do need to find a way of getting people involved, and it does happen here because you know. We do get people going to politics and, and from all sorts of ethnic backgrounds and, and whatever. But if you look back, the, if David Cameron, Boris Johnson, they're all from exactly the same. They all went to Eton. As, uh, then they went to Oxford. And then they went straight into being a researcher for a, a, government, a government member. And then, and then eventually got elected themselves. So that, um, you know, and the, the fact is, uh, they're all a member of a thing called the Bullingdon Club, which is a road not far from here where I'm sitting now, where they all used to share a house when they were undergraduates. Um, and they had this terrible reputation for partying and right. trash restaurants. And, but there were elite people who had the money to do yeah. this. To um, they, they were the working class kids who came through Oxford. These were uh, these were very much the upper echelons, and uh, and then went on. So I'm very much with what Jeremy said about the you know about there is a structure here, but it's not. I don't think my experience is it's not really uniquely, you know, a United Kingdom thing. It comes from them, and I'm sure it happens in Canada as well. Oh yeah, so. yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, like, you know. The, I, I knew a teacher and she was supporting South Africa during the apartheid eras. And the South African teacher said to her, she's like, well, this is all great that you're helping us with this, but what about your apartheid? And the teacher was like, well, what do you mean? Well, in Canada, we had what, what are called residential schools. And that's where we put in uh, indigenous children against their will, took them from their families. Like a, a police officer came and took them from their families and forced them into uh, boarding schools. So my point is, is that, you know, I can wag my finger at anybody, but we all have our history, right? Yeah, yeah. But the point is, is that, you know, yes, we have that history, but now we, we really do have to work together if we want to survive, you know, because we, we're, we're both looking over at the same country and that's China. You know what I'm saying? Like, we, we have got to come together here, people. So one thing that you were, you were speaking about too that I thought was really interesting was Brexit and, and uh, during COVID and Oxford is kind of a unique place because it does have that tourism and the university, but Brexit happens and now you're sort of thinking like, okay, is this a good idea or, you know, what are, what are your guys' thoughts on that? 
Well, I think both Jeremy and I are very much on the same page here. We we thought it was a disaster. And sorry, Jeremy, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but I know we've talked about this an awful lot. And um, it was just, you know, it, it was it, it was a populist, um, a populist, if you like, revolt against the, the government, just the things we've been talking about, people who are out of touch with, uh, by people... Yeah. Who, yeah, by people who mostly came back from a white working class you know, underprivileged backgrounds who then all suddenly got up and voted to leave the EU, which everybody had told them was a disaster for them, especially, and, um, and of course, but went ahead. Did, you know, having been, I, I, was, I was in the States in January last year doing, on a, a political sort of thing from here, and, and we went to Iowa to look at the, uh, the, um, the primaries in Iowa, you know, where they were choosing the candidates for, uh, this was just before lockdown, and the same people who voted for Trump and we went to a Trump rally at one point. Now, I know these people, they come from the north of England, where I come from, you know, they're exactly yeah. with the same motivations. And I'm sure that they are all over the world. You could go, you could go to some poor part of BC, I'm sure, and find people who would be of the same view. And, um, and that we've just, it shows how badly the elites mm. in this have the, um, but yeah. Jeremy, what's your, what's your view on this? Oh, sorry, you got you, you... Sorry, until I just, um, well, I was going to say, with regards to, Oxford. Well, first of all, in terms of how the country voted in Brexit, uh, for Brexit, it was, it was predominantly for Leave. Um, so, if you look at a map, even even though um, it was it was fifty fifty, roughly. Uh, I think it was in, 50, in, in Oxford. It was fifty fifty. Oh no, no in, in the country, in the country, oh, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. it was fifty two percent voted for Leave, forty eight percent voted to remain um so it, it was roughly 50 50 it wasn't a huge majority uh, so it split the country down the middle uh but geographically if you were to look at a map a bit like when you see the the, the u.s maps and it always seems like um on election night it always seems like um and i know they flip it don't they so red red means um republican on that map and yeah. it's, it's usually mostly red you think well how come the democrat it's because of population centers like california whatever 35 million people and most of them vote democrat new york and the east coast uh well it was similar the map the map of brexit was similar so it's basically london mm. london was the only place that, that that voted for remain uh, apart from one or two, Liverpool voted Remain, but then they're slightly different. Um, there's a lot of Irish people, a lot of Irish heritage. Um, and, of course, it would break the connection with Ireland, as it is threatening to do now. Right. So, but Liverpool's always been a bit of a rebel city anyway. Um, and apart from that, it was really university cities like Newcastle and Oxford. So Oxford is a bubble. Oxford's a bit like London. Um, it's very It's very liberal. Um, it's very cosmopolitan in terms of its ethnic makeup, na uh, geographical, uh, you know, national nationalities that are here, uh, and it's very academic. Um, but with it, so Oxford was very predominantly remain. But within that, within that, because I work for City Sightseeing, most of the drivers, most of the bus drivers, mm. voted um, voted for leave. And were quite fervent about it. I heard that on the morning of when the result came through, they were down the depot, all the drivers and the mechanics, listening to the radio. And when it came through that Leave had won, they all cheered. I also heard that just after the cheer, and I'm not going to repeat what the guy, one of the drivers said something very racist. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I'm not going to say what it is because it, it, you know, it's, it's horrible. Um, and my boss, who's fairly level-headed, said, "Look, I put up with a lot. I'm not going to put up with that." Mm. Um, so, and and just to point, and the drivers, the majority of these drivers and the cat, they're all nice guys, by the way. I get on with all of them, but the majority of them are Oxford born and bred. So they all have that slight, or, or most of them have a slight West Country twang, Ox, Oxfordshire accent. So they're the minority, but but that shows me, even though even though Oxford voted for a main within that, um, the working class enclave still voted predominantly for leave. So it's very much a class-based thing, and you could say it's a class-based rebellion, which I'd be all in favour of, except I don't think it's I think it's been manipulated. And it's been manipulated by people um, from very well-heeled backgrounds like Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage. Uh, and it's been manipulated uh, through the right-wing tabloid media uh, and various other media outlets, but um, on, on a false premise, really, that the EU is this dictator dictatorial force and that we're obliged to com uh, comply with all its rules and, and all our rules and laws are made, for, uh, are made within Brussels or Strasbourg. And then, um, uh, but you put people on 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 the line, and usually, what, what laws are you sick and tired of obeying that weren't uh, contrived in this country? And it, you, they usually fall down at that point. It usually, their arguments become quite spurious. Um, <laughs> it was like, oh, bendy bananas or something, you know, that whole thing. And a lot of these things, a lot of these myths, were actually generated by Boris Johnson when he was a foreign new, uh, newspaper uh, correspondent. And it just for the sheer hell of it, just just to, to make headlines, he just make up things like, oh, uh, the the EU have dictated that every every banana must must be straight or something ridiculous, yeah. or they're gonna they're Sensationalist. gonna Sensationalist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. gonna scratch yeah. an onion crisps or he's something stupid. He sounds like Citizen Kane. You ever seen yeah. that movie? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Right, and it's just like, it was, dude, yeah, it, it was. But, you know, we're, we're living with the consequence now, but I, and I think it's going to be fascinating to see what happens post-COVID. And because I, all at once, of course, in the UK was we finally left the EU at the end of last year, at the end of 2020. And, and then, of course, we're right in the middle of the whole COVID thing. So it was, you know, it, it's just, it's going to be very, very interesting to see what happens after, after you know, politically, well, all over the world, I suppose, but just for us here in the UK. Um, the, the tidal wave, we got hit by two tidal waves coming in seemingly opposite directions. <laughs> so it'll be, it, yeah, it will be interesting, yeah. yeah. Well, well, yeah, if, if, if ever there was divine intervention, uh, I think COVID, you know what I mean? Although it was a guy who ate a bat, but anyways. Um, yeah, yeah the, the, the other thing too is uh, um, that we're seeing this sort of like, the, and this national sort of reliance on oneself. And you know, we're kidding ourselves if, if again, that's not being seen around the world. It's not just a UK thing. I mean, also think about Trump in America, right? And and there's under there's there's undercurrents of that here in Canada, this sort of like nationalist kind of fervor, right? These anti-maskers have now been amalgamated to like the government's trying to take our rights, and it's like, dude, like, come on. Let's think about yeah. this, right? That yeah. doesn't make any sense. But anyways, when you get people sharing crazy ideas, mm. these things, and and uh, there's a book that I, I read, it's called Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I read and, that book. And it's based in the UK. And I thought there were some really good points because, again, it 
we think it's immigration that we need to be afraid of, but actually I really do think it's these like, you know, the, the Ted Cruz's of the world, right? Uh, Texas is, you know, this world's worst snowstorm and he's flown off to Cancun, right? So it's like, who's actually looking out for the best interests of people versus who's looking out for their agenda? And, and really, uh, again, in the United States, Stacey Abrams, who was uh, this sort of activist, got people to vote in Georgia, and she, she single-handedly saved democracy from a second term of Donald Trump. And, and if that would have happened, that would have been disastrous. Yeah. Right? I think we were all quite baffled at the Trump phenomenon over here, and then we had Brexit. And, yeah. <laughs> and now with Boris Johnson, it's yeah. like, well, we're kind of on a plateau, really. I mean, we haven't we haven't had sort of mobs of rednecks storming Parliament, but we're right. kind of... And I don't think it's any coincidence that all these populist regimes have dealt terribly with COVID. There seems to be a common denominator there, like uh, with the states and with Britain, um, India, Brazil, it seems to be um, these populist regimes uh, presiding over countries that um, have dealt with COVID pretty terribly. I think it's because they're not practical, right? No. Like po populism by itself, you know, definitively is not practical. You're trying to give everybody what they want. That's not how the world works. No, you, know, you, you do you have, have to make, make some decisions. hard Yeah, you have to make tough decisions. Now, the other one I wanted to talk to you guys about is, uh, is you're mentioning culture and, you know, COVID happens. And now you, you, you talked about how I believe Graham was saying that he was a producer and the big blockbuster films, we're not going to really be seeing that anymore. Now it's more kind of these, these smaller production sort of things. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, Sorry, I know Graham probably, but I've, I've actually, one of the benefits of lockdown for me, I've just watched so many movies and I've made that, that time because I've been on furlough right. and I've just been trying to educate me. One thing, I was always very critical of Netflix, for instance, and their selection of movies. You didn't get many classics and you didn't get any, block, many blockbusters either. Um, but what I've started to notice over here, a lot of British independent films mm -hmm. um and now going on pretty quickly onto Netflix. I mean, loads of them. We had the Independent Film Awards last week, and half those films are now on Netflix, and they're only 2020 films. Um, some of them go straight onto Netflix, so they're getting a much, much bigger audience than they used to. So I'm thinking maybe that's what, one thing that's going to benefit the certainly yeah. our film industry. <laughs> right. They're just going to get more distribution. It, well, it is interesting, but the it comes down to, I mean, I come from it from a producer point of view, so I'm intimately involved in thinking about the finances of these things. So, and that's part of the problem that um, if you've only got one route to market, see via Netflix, then it, when they pay, how they pay, if they pay is really down to them. And so the budgets are actually, can be actually constrained. And also the other thing is that they, they say, well, it used to be that, that if, if, uh, if a producer wanted to go with or a commissioner wanted to go with a film, they'd say, yeah, OK, and we'll give you some money up front to help cash flow, especially the early stage and development stages. That seems not to be happening now. And um, so they'll say, yeah, we'll take we'll take it onto the platform, not necessarily Netflix or whatever, but we'll take it on. But it, but they might not see any money for two years. Right. So that all has to be cash flowed all the way through. 
it's a lot of money to raise to um, to do it. And um, and in fact, I'm involved with a project now where we're 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 try we're setting up a platform to put creatives directly in touch with the commissioners and the producers with a um, with in a standardised way of pitching because it's very at the moment, believe it or not, because such a big industry. But we put, we put together a, a whole. Um, and in fact, I've just been involved in the first raising the first round of finance for it. It's called Smash, and and basically it's a. But one, uh, it's been set up by two women producers who are saying, look, this is the weakness in the industry. Mm. How do you think the person who's sitting in his her back bedroom in in somewhere in a prov you know province somewhere with a fantastic idea, but has got no way of getting in front of the right people who are looking for an yeah. idea. And so they put together a whole, and like I say, raised the first round of finance for it. So I think it's things like that, innovative approaches like that, that I think saving grace culturally, especially for film and TV, rather than the system we've got at the moment or depending on, uh, you know, Netflix or someone to take it on because you're always playing, you know, you're always playing very low down and it's hard to get the money back. It's hard to pay the actors. It's hard to pay the, you, you know, it, it it's um, so as ever, you know, the dirty money comes into this cultural side, uh, well, especially in film, which is like Jeremy, I, I'm, my, one of my big loves is film. But you have to understand that that's an expensive, an expensive business to even to make even to make low budget productions. It's it's still it's still very, you know, it, you still have to sink a lot of money into it and get a lot of people involved. So, um, yeah. Well, and, and something that I was sort of thinking about is. I, I am so I have no, no knowledge of production of film and the money that goes into it, but I imagine that these big blockbuster films that you know they get uh, you know carte blanche you know whatever you guys want, but there's a very specific sort of um, uh, epistemology with it, right? Like so, for example, the most recent Star Wars film, some of the messaging in it seems so force fed. Because they had so much money, but the executives were like, okay, well, we got to make sure that we have, you know, uh, inclusivity. We got to make sure that we have, you know, like the, the, the color spectrum, you know, all this stuff. And it's like, okay, I, I'm seeing that this is a little bit force fed. Like, I guess what I'm saying is that when you have smaller productions, you get people that are saying what they want to say yeah. versus what the executives want them to say, if that makes sense. I mean, I'd make the con I'd make the point um, that that's actually a different industry. The whole blockbuster is what they call the tentpole productions. In right. The, the one thing that holds everything else up. That's a different industry, or almost a different industry. They're films, but the business they're in is Saturday Night Entertainment. So right. they're competing with restaurants, they're competing with bowling alleys, they're competing with um, right. concert. It's That's the industry. It's to get people out on a... Independent film is a completely different thing, um, you know, and most people will never make the transition who work in the industry from the independent and small production into the blockbuster level. You know, it's, a, it's a, just a different business. It's like it's like someone said to the guy who runs Rolex, said to him, you know, what what's the watch industry like? He said, right. I've got an idea. I'm in the luxury goods business, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's, a, it's a different thing. Completely different beast. Yeah. So if you're a young, a young director, writer, um, actor, um, what you're looking at is something very, very different from from what we see. You know, right. It's, it's just not the same business. Um, and, so, yeah. and I was going to say we have we. Uh, 
I've noticed similar trends with the, the BBC, who are our national broadcaster, a bit like what you were talking about with the Star Wars scenario, that kind of social in, engineering. Um, Great I mean, word for I, To be honest, I don't really have that much of a problem with Star Wars because it's a fantasy universe. Yes. But most BBC drama, um, it's like, it's a bit like a quota system. I think the US drama was the same in the 70s, like when one in four actors has to be black. And I think that mm. the problem with me, me watching it is it doesn't always ring true. It's like, well, the top magistrate in, in the land is a black person. I think, well, how, li how likely? I know it could happen, but it seems to be like a lot of people black, black I don't want to sound racist, but no, yeah. I, it's an authenticity Um it's, and, and I, I get the feeling they're trying to lead society rather than reflect society, you know. Yeah. But that seems to be overturned now. There was a series called I May Destroy You, which seemed a lot more convincing in the, the way uh, different genders and sexualities and races would, would, it would integrate. The, the circumstances of their lives seem much more convincing, if you see, right. um, than a top sort of British detective being a black guy. I just, I, I, I can't stand forced messaging. You know what I mean? Like, for example, there's a show on Netflix called Bridgertown, which, you know, for anybody, for anybody who can just stop and reflect, bridge, bridge town. So there's yeah, a bridge yeah. between the white community and the black community. And we all just got to get oh, I, 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 I no, oh, don't watch it. It's, it's garbage. It's trite. It's trite. I have seen it. I have seen it. Yeah. I, in terms of, yeah. as a My girlfriend so up, right? I didn't mind it, but... I think the yeah. I, I, I think the writer comes from California, and she said she'd done a bit of research, and she said there were black people around in London at that time, and there were just like there always have been, but not in that quantity, and certainly not not in the royal family there weren't. I mean, it's historical, and people say it's great because it's showing it's it's colorblind casting. I think they call it. It's giving yeah. historical period drama roles to people who didn't have access to those roles before. But I think it could set a dangerous precedent because actually Britain at that time was was in slavery, and yeah. it may be sending the wrong historical message yeah. that actually things were fine back then. And, um, and, and that and that 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 industry because that's what it was was horrific. Yeah, and, yeah. and furthermore, the 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 black uh, actors are really they're kind of. Um, they're placating to a white culture, right? Like this, yeah. hello, miss, how are you, right? And it's like, uh, there, yeah. there, there, there's assimilation going on there that I think is kind of a dangerous message, right? Because Do again, you know what? Yeah. Go, go, go ahead, Graham. Yeah, it's interesting. My, my daughter, I was talking to my daughter about this, and I made exactly the same point you got about Bridget, you know, and said, it's just completely ridiculous. You know, yeah. it's the way it's well written. Yeah. And she looked at me pityingly and she said, Dad, you do realise that this is what she calls mummy porn. It's actually porn for women. <laughs> <laughs> Fifty Shades I'm of Grey. Yeah, you know, because yeah. clothes yeah, have yeah, yeah. ripped off at All these studs you know? and you're like, ah, yeah, I don't yeah. like... If I shaved my chest, I'd look like that. Yeah, well, I don't think I ever would, but you know what I mean? It's... Um, it's uh, but, but, I think um, there is a, there is a counter argument. There is a counter argument, and in this country, I mean, there has been social engineering, particularly in our soap operas, our yeah. top soap operas. Coronation. This will probably mean nothing to you. Rob. Oh, my <laughs> grandmother loved Coronation Street. Yeah, East, Eastenders from the eighties. Yeah. They started having gay characters. Yeah, 
And there's no, there's no doubt that in our society in Britain, we're a million times more tolerant and accepting of gay people. It's, 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 it's pretty much accepted. When I was growing up as a teenager in the 80s, there was still stigma around it. Then they started bringing in a lot of gay characters on television drama. And so it was social engineering. I remember watching at the time, um, I remember my sister laughing. There was a scene where um, the men were all having a, all, all having a, um, a late-night card game in the back of the pub. And they thought that they were doing it secretly. They sort of got out of bed and they'd gone to the back of the Queen Vic and they were having a late night poker game. And they, all their wives came and caught them. And uh, but his wife didn't show up. No, but what happened was one of the one of the characters playing poker was gay, and his husband came along. And my sister goes, "Oh, that wouldn't happen. This is the East End of London." But now it's. I'm thinking, yeah, but maybe that maybe that was groundbreaking in a way. And I think, I think maybe. I can't complain if it has changed society. Mm. It has led to... I can't complain. But for me personally, and what I enjoy about drama, I want authenticity and I want I want some kind of truth. Jeremy, I, I, I have to... I love that point. Because, uh, you know, I... Not to sound pretentious, but I like to, to be as informed as I can about things on, on a real level, right? So reading, you know, books and stuff, and that's that has helped me to sort of see things... Uh, you know, to inform myself, because if I don't read, I'm just going to be like everybody else and sort of uh, appealing to that social construction, social engineering. But when you sort of start to read these things, you can look at them and see, okay, I see what you're doing here, right? But for people that are a little bit more like, you know, they're just living their lives. They're like, oh, they are like us, right? And it's like, well, yeah, no shit. But anyways, for some people, that's their sort of wake-up call to, 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 to the masses. I, yeah, I think, and, and it's always, you wear it patronizing people, but maybe, maybe some need to be laid on thick. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Maybe they need to have it made that obvious. Well, well, well I, I have met people who, like, you know, salt of the earth, my, my aunt and uncle, they're wonderful people, but they're, they're, they're rednecks. And they watch things on TV and that's their means of sort of like, you know, people are different and that's okay. And they're like, Oh, right. Like it's almost, they have to be spoon fed the, the principles of equality mm -hmm. and equity. Right. Whereas for us or, you know, and, I, and, and here I am doing that us and them thing, but for myself, it's like, okay, with Bridgetown, I see what you're doing. And I'm not buying it, right? But, but it's interesting with Bridgerton because I had a, an argument about this uh, social engineering with a friend of mine, and she says, how can you say that? How can you say there aren't black detectives? And I, well, I said, well, there are, but it's just unlikely that that, that black detective, uh, Idris Elba, would be the best detective in London. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, no, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, but I said, well, what shows you? She says, well, I like, I like um, uh, you know, colour inclusive shows. I said, what are you talking about? She says, Star Trek. I said, well, that's not an issue for me because that's a fantasy world but in actual fact um that's not meant to reflect real life that's meant to be an ideal society in a way but in actual fact when i saw bridgerton i just assumed it was some kind of fantasy disney world um a yeah. bit like frozen or something mm. but then i noticed they're bringing real life historical characters like queen charlotte and king george no it's meant to be regency england um uh, but it's obviously yeah. absurd because you know <laughs> yeah it's like my my mother told me when I was like five that William Shakespeare died because someone threw a spear at his head. 
And I was like, and, and I was like, whoa, that must be true, right? And then I went to school and I found out that that wasn't like I even put up my hand. He was yeah. killed by a spear. And the teacher looked at me like I was an idiot. So I guess what I'm saying is that, you know, don't always trust what you hear. Like, like yeah. there are messages that are coming through, and, and these are good messages. I I believe, you know, there, there, there's good intention here, is what I'm trying to say. But sometimes the road to hell can be paved in good intentions, yeah, right? Yeah. And 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 we do need to know the history of the things that we've done. For and I like I've mentioned, indigenous people in Canada. If if we made some some rom com uh, docudrama about you know how wonderful it was between the indigenous people and the in you know the settlers here, that would be wrong, and that would to me that would be kind of harmful. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe the tone of Bridgerton makes it just about acceptable. I don't know, but it, it's set in 1815. We hadn't in Britain abolished slavery by then. Right, so that's my problem with it. Um, it's historically inaccurate. It's historically inaccurate <laughs> in the sense that just that were, there weren't that many black people in Britain or in London, and they certainly weren't members of the, the aristocracy. Right. Um, I saw a pitch. Is it, is it Shona, the late Shona? I've forgotten her name, who's a producer. And she was pitching it as, a, um, as an alternative universe, you know, right. an alternative, a better universe than Britain actually was in the 18th it's, it's not made clear, is it? The premise no. isn't made clear. You could see, if you, you, you know, you had never read a history book, you could pick it up and say, well, look, you know, what? So there was no problem at all. You right. know, it was actually better then than it is now in terms of racial integration, you know, but. I don't know. We're on, we're on difficult ground here, aren't we? I mean, it's uh, yeah. You know. Yeah, you're always wary about saying the wrong thing as well, and that's why um, I think a lot of people are self-censoring because of that very fact. And 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 to me, that's the problem: is that when we're so afraid of getting it wrong that we don't do anything, that's when real difficulties can can ensue. Yeah. Like that's why this show. I have this show. It's you know, I'm going to say something, and I have. I try to be as inclusive as possible. You know, in terms of voices. And, uh, you know, I'm going to say something, but please correct me versus cancel culture, right? Because that is something that we have to be afraid of. When you cancel what people say, I think it actually makes people more extreme. I think that cancel culture has created these, this endotrophic effect of it's created ex extremists, right? It's, it's created these rednecks and it's created this platform where they can say, you know, down with it all or whatever. And then other people who have been castrated for what they've said hear these people and they go oh yeah that's a good idea right and i am so against that that's why we need to have these conversations and, my, and we need my, to be able to get it wrong sorry go, yeah, my go problem ahead. about um some of the cancel and I, I disagree with most of it um but i cringe when i hear people making very outspoken statements like uh there was one recently where uh, a, a top British television scriptwriter, who I've actually got loads and loads of time for, but he said only only gay people should play gay characters. And I kind of cringed. Well, I disagree with them for a start. I thought, well, what, what's acting? Uh, because uh, they, only they have <laughs> the authenticity. Point, yeah. But I also thought, oh, you're just giving them ammunition. You know, you're just making the rednecks think the worst their worst expectations of what you'll say you're just playing into that and so they're going to react in a more extreme way um i just think you have to tread very carefully and be reasonable i think that just be balanced and be reasonable i i i agree i so i, I work as a as a clinical counselor and it, um 
in the school I was at grade seven class are talking about rainbow sidewalks and which is to, you know, support and raise awareness for the, the, the LGBTQ community. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, the one kid was like, well, that's not fair. And the teacher's like, well, what do you mean? Well, I, then I can't use that sidewalk. Cause the kid thought that because it's a rainbow sidewalk, it's for okay. people of that community. Right. Yeah. So, that's the, therein lies the balance is, is we have to have these conversations so we can get some clarity. Mm. Right. And, and I think that a lot of people are kind of scratching their heads and they're like, well, if I say that I could offend somebody, why are we so sensitive? <laughs> right. It's okay. to It's okay to, you know, like it's okay yeah. to disagree, but let's just try and understand one another. Now, yeah. When I was listening to your episode, I thought it was so amazing. You were talking about Amazon. Did you actually get an Amazon package during that that episode? Um, yeah, I think I did. I think that was because <laughs> because you guys were talking about culture and 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 markets changing and stuff. And then you're like, "Oh, I got to go get my Amazon package." And I was like, yeah, that's "How?" Right, yeah. Like that is just human irony in in, yeah, in the highest is. sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, God knows. I mean, I, um, we all have our, our 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 sort of reasons to be critical of Amazon and things. But I, you know, I, for me, I sit at my computer and I think I could order even I could even order from another website. But I've got Amazon Prime and my lazy lazy instincts kick in and you know like everybody else oh god i'll just order it from amazon you know that was it you know and then it appears as by magic the next morning so um yeah i have got an amazon related story and it it kind of ties in with what we were talking about before is that i went to i went to like a comedy club it was was sort of spoken word comedy club and the compare um there just seemed to be this, um, one of the poets got up and, and said, okay, what are the crowd like? Are they all left wing? And he goes, yeah, you know, no problem here. <laughs> I thought, well, that's just an assumption. What if I wasn't? Um, <laughs> and actually some of the things being, I won't say talked about, being spoken about, or being spoken about, but also poetry being, sp- I thought, no, I don't agree with that. I don't, I don't think Jeremy Corbyn's a great leader of the Labour Party and things like that. I, but I felt like I couldn't say that. But one thing was that the compare was having a bit of sort of pre-act banter. And he was saying, oh, what, 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 anything, any recommendations on Netflix, blah, blah, blah. And one guy recommended a show. He says, well, actually, I always, the trouble is I always get confused what's on, what's on Netflix and what's on Amazon. And the compare said, you mean you've subscribed to Amazon? Well, you can get right out of the room. <laughs> Money to Amazon. <laughs> I thought, well, I'll get, I'll keep quiet yeah. with, my, with my recommendations. You're supporting this capitalist regime. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, here's the, here's the thing too that 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 I think is, you know, and, and you guys were talking about this is we're we're becoming. So I've had more, in, so I, I'm doing these Zoom calls and I'm speaking to people all over the world. Yourselves, uh, I've spoken to people from you know Nigeria, Kenya. Uh, oh, uh, New Zealand and I'm finding something very interesting I have more in common with the people that I'm talking with than some of my own countrymen right well, yeah exactly so, and that's yeah. this that's this weird we're finding our minute mm. very specific culture and we're kind of going that way and really politics it's hard to grasp that because I look at the left and I look at the right and I look at I just see assholes <laughs> <laughs> You know what I mean? I just see politicians 
playing political games, you know, playing the populist thing or playing the fear card or whatever. And it's just like, none of what you're saying is resonating with me anymore. And that is actually kind of scary. Yeah, mm. absolutely. I mean, right? I, mean I feel very alienated from yes. people. In my, I was saying to a friend the other day, um, I don't feel a lot, got a lot in common with most people in my country anymore. And it, it started with Brexit and it was exacerbated by COVID and the sort of blasé attitude a lot of people had towards COVID. Um, I thought, I feel alienated. I don't feel like I'm part of the culture, really. Um, I thought I was, but it feels like the last five years has proved something else was going on that I just wasn't aware of. Um, and, yeah, I often do, I mean, you know, that, connect with tourists, I take one, yeah. Do, do you think we all as sort of, you know, hesitate to, forgive me for a moment, but as as educated metropolitan liberals, you know what I mean? We might be in a, our own little yeah. bubble. Yeah. We don't wander out enough, you know, in there, which is, I mean, what we've been trying to do with our podcast a bit is try, trying to get, but, the, but it tends to be a bit self-selecting because you get... Yes who are very well educated, who achieve things or in the arts or things like that. And we all sit around and agree with each other a lot of the time. And um, so uh, it'd be interesting to get some of the guys down from, you know, work as drivers for Jeremy's firm. And uh, well, I, I think there's a flip side to the metropolitan elite. And, and that is, if I look at my own story, I came from quite a small town, which was just horrible, horrible to grow up in. And I didn't yeah. like it there. So you, you go to university or you go to college and, and then you move to a big city and you fit in better, and you don't want to go back. And it's because, okay, you you think I look down on you guys or where I came from, but you were nasty to me. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds really, sound really whingy. Yeah. But I think that's one very small instance. I remember reading a, 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 an interview with Paul Schrader, the, the, the scriptwriter, and he said he went back to his, his small town, and the guy, one of his uncles was criticising, like, television. He said, oh, these fucking assholes, you know, they, <laughs> Yeah. I know the guy who made the show, he grew up around here and he was never liked. And so then they go to the big city and they make these TV shows and then they try, they beam these TV shows into our living rooms and they try and tell us how to live our lives. Well, the fact was they never fit in around here, so they had to go to New York. And I think there's a lot of that, um, you know. So anybody who's got something about them will leave these little towns and go, and it sounds snobbish, but there's a reality there. If, 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 if everybody has pretense, right? And it's like the realest people in the world are some of the roughest, but but that's who they are, you know. Like like honesty uh, is something that I'm getting back to. Like just being honest. Like my wife today was like, "Hey, do you want to go see these people?" And I'm like, "No, <laughs> I don't." And it felt fucking great. I was like, "Man, I feel so happy." I said that, right? Yeah. Because we we sit in these rooms and and people are kind of just wearing masks, but. Now Aristotle, or excuse me, Plato talked about the, the allegory of the cave, right? And how this guy was in the cave and he was seeing these images. And then finally one day he's like, that's it. I'm getting out of the cave. I'm done with this. But I, I, I sometimes think that we get out of our caves and we have these revelations, but really we've just gone into another cave. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm sure that's, that's true in a sense. And you can get... I'm always very conscious because I come from a very small town, post-industrial, working-class place. Right. And my mum died last um, last June, and I I was going back and seeing people being up because I I live in the south of England. All my all the family do. My sister does, and and so we were going back up there, and then you suddenly meet all these people you grew up with again. You know, who either 
great relationship in lots of ways with, you know, I've known them all my life, but there were always two sorts of people. The people that left when they were 17 or 18 and the people who stayed behind. And, and in a sense, it's, it's so local and right. the way they think and the way they talk. And, and, and the only way to deal with it I've come, is that you just, you know, you, you have to slot back into that world and you never, ever talk about what you do or what your world is like or what, you know, and they say, oh, yeah, I was meeting with Jeremy or do the podcast with, you know, no one there does a podcast. Do you know what I mean? Right. Oh, Jeremy's right. an actor and a tour guide and does all these sort of, and a writer. And no one up there is, a, is an actor or a writer. You know what I mean? It just... Yeah. It, doesn't sort of um yeah um, I, I had that experience i was uh going out for a drink with some some old school friends um and uh yeah i had a good time we had a drink when when to watch a football match but um they said well, what do you do now and i didn't say i'm an actor i didn't say I'm a, <laughs> i just said one of my act which is i do children's parties children which is one thing i do Right. Uh, they found that quite amusing, actually. They they said, "Oh, really? I you, you were quite clever when you were at school." <laughs> yeah, that's right. This is what it was. Oh, okay. Well, what's wrong with doing children's play? But I thought, well, I ain't going to bloody sermon act because for one thing, people always say, "Oh, have I seen you in anything?" And no, you won't have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. <laughs> what What have you been on on telly? And I've only ever done theatre, so I just don't want to go down that road. But also, I think I don't want to sound like a I don't want to sound, you know, big-headed or, 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 or just like an idiot, yeah. really, yeah. which is strange, really. Yeah. But I'm... Uh, yeah. You know how I, I can tell... I don't like actors when I see them on TV either. I'll just say that now. I don't really like... I, I saw Olivia Coleman. I did, there was a... a um, it came up on my Facebook feed this morning. And it was people in Yemen suffering. I thought, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm really down with that. I'm really, yeah, loads of compassion. But then she, kept, the person doing the appeal was her. I thought, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, why is always an actress get involved? Right. Yeah. Isn't it funny how we have to use actors to convey, you know, political messages or whatever, right? It's like, yeah. you're, you're, the, you're Thor. You played a, a guy who shot lightning bolts. Like, I don't, uh, you, you're not exactly the person to speak on. Have you ever heard of a guy called Howard Smith? No. DJ in New York in the late 60s. Oh, that's right. He's one of the right wing shock jocks, wasn't he? Was, or did, no, did, no, no, oh, uh, Howard Stern. Howard no, Stern. not Howard Stern. No, this, this is a totally oh, different guy. This is a somebody, he was good friends with John Lennon and Yoko Ono. Okay. Anyway, he did a, you can find, I've downloaded about six compilations of his show from, from iTunes. Um, but in one episode, there's about an hour and a half interview with Dustin Hoffman, which is fat, and he's only mm. made two movies, I think, The Graduate and Midnight Cowboy. And they had this conversation about actors going on chat shows and talking about politics and talking about, you know, social issues. And he says, well, I'm always sceptical about this. And he's, the, the host, Howard Smith, said, why are you sceptical? He said, because in my experience, he said, for instance, my own situation, I've just, I've just broken through as an actor. I spent the preceding 10 years right. trying to get work, and that occupied all my time trying yeah. to get work as an actor. And now I spent all my time making movies. I don't have time to study... Um, the political situation or the Nixon administration or Vietnam or anything, you know, it's all about trying to make it. And then, you know, 24 seven making movies doing, 
and so he says, I'm very, I'm very, I, I'm not saying they're wrong, but I'm suspicious. I thought, and he said he went out with a ballet dancer. Um, and her whole world, because obviously ballet dancers, it's nine, nine to five, you know, going through their exercises, whatever, jetés and leg stretches and yeah. flexes. And then they do a show in the evening. And he said, so he spent some time hanging out with these dancers. And he said they were the most ignorant people. They didn't know what was going on in the news because they were just in that little bubble, the theatre right. world yeah. bubble. Yeah. And... Um, I think there's something in that, you know, well, why you now get... And I can't help thinking there's a bit of self-promotion and a bit of self-aggrandizement going on with it, in many cases, not all of them. I think that's such a great point. It's like, you know, what you're doing, what you're focusing on, that's what you're doing and what you're focusing on. Meanwhile, you know, there's all kinds of stuff going around us. Like, my uncle, he'll he'll ask me about something like, oh, man, did you hear about what happened? And it's like you know, on the news or whatever. And I, I just, I don't watch news because, you know, I, I feel like there's a bit of an agenda with news. Not, yeah. I'm not a conspiracy theorist or anything, but, and, and he's like, how do you not know about what's going on in Pakistan and, and over there? It's like, well, pff, I, I don't know. Am I supposed to know? If, if I'm supposed to know, you're going to tell me, right? So the other thing too, is that I think with celebrity, we, I guess what I'm trying to say is we're animals right? We really are animals and we think we're so smart, but at the end of the day, you know, we, we're supposed to be grabbing low-hanging fruit off trees and being like, yeah, right? That's kind of what we do. But with celebrity, imagine anywhere you go in the world and people could recognize you, how discomforting yeah. that would be. It's weird. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's like, weird. That's horrifying. Like, and you can never come back from that. You cross the line. Never. Right, like you could be Shia LaBeouf and you have no money or whatever. I think he's he was broke at one point, but people always be like, "Hey, you're the Transformer guy," and it's like, "Can you please leave me alone? My life is in complete shambles." Right, like, <laughs> you know, there's no escape, and I think that 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 just is like hell on our minds. Uh, one one thing that you're talking about in your episode that I loved was this sort of how society sort of separates itself. And you talked about gender, and then I think it was uh, I think it was Graham. You're no Jeremy. You're talking about introverts and extroverts. Oh yes, yes. And how this what do you is want to know about that? <laughs> well, it, it's funny you bring that up, is because um, you're talking about how in society there's introverts and there's extroverts, and yeah, you know, introverts get things done, and extroverts say they're going to get things done. You know, mm. they're these personalities, right? It's kind of like that. I think with extroverts, they push themselves to the front, but they're not necessarily the best people to take charge because I think introverts, by their very nature, are more thoughtful and will, will give something more consideration. Um, that's, but I think society is biased in favour of the extrovert. I think right. that's uh, part of the problem. Um, I also... Uh, have you heard of a guy called John Ronson? No. Um He's, uh, I don't know how to say, he's kind of like a journalist, but he goes around, he takes a theme and he runs with it. He, um, um, he had a book out called So You've Been Publicly Shamed, and he'll interview people who've been publicly shamed and, and how they, you know, on the internet That's or bad. whatever. And he did it, he invented something else called the psychopath test, 
um, which is how psychopaths aren't necessarily serial killers, they can be CEOs. And there's a test you can determine very early on in life to determine, um, you know, whether you are in the 2% of the population who are psychopaths. And uh, there are some professions, like uh, being in the military or even being, you know, the head of, uh, head of Amazon, <laughs> yeah. where it may be advantageous to be a psychopath or a sociopath. Anyway, John Ronson was talking about, um, I mean, he, he talks about being an introvert um, quite a lot, but he also talked about this idea of brainstorming and how it's been shown not to be a very effective way of generating ideas because usually it's the people who shout loudest who get heard. Um, and introverts or reflective people tend to want to go off and, and give it some consideration so the best thing you do is hire two, two great people, two creative people to go off, say, think about this overnight, come back with some ideas. But no, there's this pressure, and the loudest people, the most extrovert people, the show-offs, if you like, tend to push to the forefront and say things without much, through sheer force of personality, they get their things on the whiteboard. And he was saying it's a bit of a flawed system, but I then... A couple of weeks after that, I was in a brainstorming session and I thought, yeah, he was right. He was right because it's he who shouts or she who shouts loudest that's getting heard here. Um, and it, and then it also becomes, you know, we're thinking of an idea for, for, for a play and it became writing by committee. And so there was no authorial voice. And so that was a problem in itself. But I do think that some... Some facility ought to be put in place within organisations and, and companies and institutions that that recognises introverts often have, you know, will go and invent the internet or something, you know, but they need a bit of time and space and they're generally better off working on their own, you know. Well, it, now, now to, to sort of piggyback off that, um, you guys probably think like, oh, this guy, Rob, he's such an extrovert, right? Like, cause I'm loud and gregarious or whatever. But as I've gotten older, I'm, I'm actually much more reflective. Like this, this takes energy out of me. And then afterwards I'm like, hence I was telling you before about how my wife was like, let's go see these people. And I'm like, no, I don't want to go see those people because I actually am an introvert, but I have this weird extroverted shell that makes yeah. it good to sell things or, or whatever, because that's I, what we're all doing. I think doing. I'm the same, and I heard uh, Joni Mitchell in uh, in an interview once, and they were saying, "Well, you can write these these deep, personal, reflective songs, and you can go out and sing in front of thousands of people." She says, "Yeah, I think I'm a bitrovert." <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, I like I, that. I also have you seen a show called um, Oh, what's it called Pose about no. the voguing scene in New York in the in the early '90s? And there's a character in that who's the end. You know, voguing like. Madonna made popular in that video, yeah. you know, where they dress up and they, they pretend they're on the catwalk and they strut around to music and it's all elaborate fancy dress. And it's all very flamboyant and camp and, and it's brilliant, actually. And the MC is one of the most outrageous characters as it is. But I saw one of these actors around the table things on YouTube where actors are talking about their career and, and the host said, what's the most surprising thing about yourself or the thing that people would be most surprised to find out? And he said, I'm a situational extrovert. And they said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, I'm an extrovert when I need to be. People think I like this all the time, but I just have the capacity to turn it on. Right. And I, I think I'm a bit like that. I'm not, not to his extent, but I, 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 I have the tools and the capacity to go, you know, to go on stage and perform or to conduct an interview or to get up and sing a song. But actually, when it comes to my own personal taste, I'm happy in my own company and I'm happy right. doing quiet things. 
Um, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think that's one of the things that's come out of COVID because I've discovered, because I'm, you know, I'm very gregarious and I love people and I, but I, there are times recently when I've just felt, you know, to go home and be back in my own place. And um, mm. I saw my girlfriend yesterday and then I dropped her back off home this morning. I thought, oh, it's actually quite nice. You know, now, <laughs> to you guys later, I can do what I want. I've got my list of things I want to do. And I'm, you know, much more content than I ever thought I would be. So I don't, you know, find it, having a bit of, I'm discovering a bit of introspection quite late in life. <laughs> so yeah. it, it's, it's a really, uh, you know, it is quite, it has been a, something that probably none of us would have had the opportunity to discover really in some ways apart from the current situation but well, i think for many years i was i felt shame about being an introvert and i wouldn't admit i was an introvert because i thought it was a shameful thing to be and that's because i was conflating it with shyness which in itself isn't a bad thing you know right? but when I, I i think um when i was young and i was i had a crippling shyness and i think people almost shamed me for that um you know, by you know, you need to stand up for yourself, or you need to be more assertive. Need to put yourself to the front. And when I got got to drama school, you know, I went to drama school, and it was full of extroverts. And they used to say, "Oh, you're this, you're a really quiet guy. You're really quietly spoken, or all this." And I felt it was a source of shame when it was just my personality. Um, and as I got more, I wouldn't say I'm shy now. I think I've built up confidence over the years, but I think I have an introspective side. Right, and. Uh, but I confuse shyness with introspection. And I think introspection is I just prefer it this way, you know. I'm not yeah. afraid of going over and speaking to that guy at the bar, but I prefer to sit here and read a book. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, sorry, go ahead, Rob. Go ahead, you, you, Rob. No, 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 Graham, Graham. I, no, I was just going to say, uh, Jeremy did a one-man show about sex addiction, and if you'd seen him do that for an hour, you, you would not think he was... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, because that's vulnerable, right? Yeah, it is yeah. vulnerable, but you know what it is? I, um, I always think I've got, I've got a couple of really good examples. I remember Johnny Carson interviewing Richard Pryor, and mm. they both admit they were very shy. Uh, this was on The Tonight Show. They both admitted they were very shy, you know, introspective guys. And, and they both confessed that when they went to a party, they used to hide in the bathroom, and they did some sort of gag about uh, amazing what you could find in people's medicine cabinets. Right. And then Richard Price said, well, why do you think it is? Why do you think we do? What? You know, you're on this talk show. I'm a comedian. Why? And he said, you know what it is? I think because somebody said, here's a stage, here's a platform. Somebody's given us a license. It's when you're not given the platform and you have to sort of edge your, your own way and, and you're on an equal plateau. And also, I think with acting, you're pretending to be somebody else. Um, you know, oh, you're not being... Psychological contract, yeah, uh, right, yeah, yeah. You're pretending to be somebody else, so it's not, you're not being you. I think being a comedian, the type of comedian where you are being you, where you are exhibiting your own personality, must be one of the most terrifying things and, and having to deal with hecklers and all that. Well, and, and, and you mentioned comedians. They're geniuses. They're, you know, hundreds of years from now, you know how we look at Socrates and Aristotle? I imagine that that's how people will look at Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah, very likely. Right, yeah. like like just as this guy who was able to uh, characterize and sort of satirize the civilization at at the time, right? Yeah. And and that's why I think truly successful people who are in the spotlight often are they're, they're introverts that are able to sort of turn that switch. Whereas just extroverts, I wonder if there's a correlation between you know mental illness and introversion and extroversion right like 
When I'm just sitting at home and I'm being pensive, I'm not being depressed. I'm being thoughtful, but somebody might be like, oh man, he's so solemn and sulky. So I don't know. I, I, I wonder about mental wellness. Yeah, I mean, this is mental illness. Yeah. And I think this is such a difficult thing, isn't it? Because, I, you know, to be honest and, and to be perhaps a bit controversial about this, I often wonder whether where um, mental illness starts mm. and indulgence finishes, you know what I mean? And there are people who are genuinely, genuinely suffering and mentally. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. People who kind of wave that flag and you think, no, you're just a self-indulgent. OK, you know what I mean? <laughs> To find more, you know, who ought to be a bit more, um, uh, you know, who ought to look at themselves in the mirror a bit more clearly, you know, that uh, perhaps that's the wrong way to look at no, it. No. But, uh, you know, I think too that there's a lot of messages. Like when we go on the internet, and and honestly, man, to me, the internet is like it's the new gold rush. Everybody's everybody's a prospector. They're all trying to find their gold nugget, and oh, I'm a millionaire, right? And then we see these things, and and a lot of what's on there is is so clearly inauthentic, right? Yeah. These influencers and stuff. But I think that this sort of, this life that some people live of, oh, look how posh my life is. We do that whole comparative thing. And then we, we always come up lacking. Anytime we're comparing ourselves with somebody else, oftentimes we come up lacking. And so much of that is what I have done in my own society. Right, so I, I'm kind of speaking for myself, but yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's um, uh, who knows? I mean, I mean, we, the, the, the people seem to be predicting a tsunami of mental illness when COVID mm. comes. But I, I think if it, you know, like we were just discussing, if it's given us a chance to be a bit more introspective and maybe decide what was really important to us, then you know, there might be. Um, and if it's a shot across the bow, say, look. You guys aren't, you know, we're human beings with X billion of us on the planet, but we can't control most stuff. We can't control if we don't, if we don't, if we, you know, if a plague like this can happen. But maybe we can, you know, we're on our way to screwing up the environment. Then, you know, let's maybe it's time for a little, you know, yeah. back and think a bit more clearly about what we really do want and what's important. But um, yeah, or maybe that's just me being pretentious. <laughs> yeah, but, but you know, but, but I kind of hope that's the case. Yeah, yeah. I really do. Perhaps the discomfort is a message that, you know, we can either run from and distract ourselves from, or we can turn and face, you know, and, and a lot of the people that I've spoken to on here, again, you know, perhaps it is an echo chamber, but there is that similar sort of, you know, what can I do to better my situation? Now, Jeremy, um, you, you'd also mentioned, and, and you don't have to speak to this if you're not comfortable with it, but you talked about OCD. Uh, yeah. And and how that's been during uh, COVID? Yeah, it hasn't been great. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. uh, so I've had obsessive compulsive disorder for about thirty years. Although mm. I'm a lot better than I used to be. I've had two rounds of treatment, um, hospital treatment, and group therapy, CBT. Um, it mainly takes the form of contamination fears. Historically, that's been around fears of HIV contamination and asbestos poisoning um also checking doorknobs um or locked doors electrical appliances ovens thinking i can smell smoke and going back to check uh but also magical thinking which is a whole other world uh, area where i think i can cause something to happen by by doing or not doing certain action mm. um it's it's one of the 
things are probably find most difficult because it's the most insane to sounding but it is you know there's no cause and effect but somehow but if i do something it will cause somebody to die or the world to end or something right but um you know i've been getting better and better over the years um i run an ocd support group it's a peer-led support group in oxford uh that's another one of my of, of our podcast oxford lies with uh, stephen hoskins which is a good one um also work uh, for the charity OCD Action. Really enjoyed that. Actually ran a pub quiz for them. Well, a virtual pub quiz for them last night. But in terms of the of the pandemic, it's been really difficult. And um, because I do have contamination fears and I am hypervigilant around these things. And it, it basically feels that everything your therapist has been telling you not to do over the years, the government is now telling you to do. The doctors right. are telling you to do, like wash your hands thoroughly, you know. I've been trying for years not to wash my hands thoroughly. <laughs> and it's difficult because you felt you feel like your OCD has now been given license. And I'm not the only person because I'm very much plugged into the community, the OCD community. I, I run quite a few online support groups and it's a continuing theme that everything you've been taught to do in order to combat your OCD, particularly with contamination fears, um, you're now being encouraged to do you know when i walk past a bus shelter and there's a poster saying imagine that you've got covid yeah i don't need that kind of holy shit i'm thinking about that all the time yeah that's <laughs> already on my mind you know <laughs> what if i've got covid you know um so i don't need encouragement but probably mm. most people do most people need to be hammered like we like talk most people need to be spoon-fed and hammered over the head but for me personally um I don't need any encouragement in that area. And um, when somebody says, wash your hands for 30 seconds, I'll be washing my hands for three minutes. Or when somebody says, uh, Boris Johnson famously said, wash your hands for two happy birthdays. But that means he meant sing happy birthday twice and you will have washed your hands. <laughs> right. I'll do about 20 happy birthdays. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I'm just very... Yeah, I find it difficult, and I find it when I did go back to work for four months tour guiding, and I was only outside, so that was great. But I was shocked at a lot of people's negligence. What I saw as negligence, and right. and part of it, I do generally feel is justified. You know, when people go into a shop and they're not wearing a mask, I think, what the hell are you doing? And when the staff aren't wearing, you know, our local supermarket, I went in there twice recently. And um, the security guard had his mask around his chin. I thought, well, if, you, if you're not wearing your mask properly, what, what chance of the rest of us? Yeah. Um, there's also this feeling of being over-responsible. So it's not just about, I mean, it's partly about my own health because I'm asthmatic. I don't want to end up on a ventilator. But it's also the, the fear that I will, I will pass, I will contract COVID through my own negligence and irresponsibility. I will then pass it on to somebody else and I'll have caused a serious illness or a death so it's about me being responsible so it's almost like feeling guilty in advance of possibly doing something mm -hmm. um i've lost my thread now but yeah so it's two track it, it's it's the actual health consequence it's also about fear of, and it's also this thing about oh i, I need to i need to uh, i need to go and confront that person because they're not wearing a mask which i have done only about five times yeah. um, because, you know, we're all cowards. <laughs> right. And it usually falls on deaf ears. But I feel I'm not being a responsible citizen unless I go and confront that or report that. When I, went, I did go for one COVID test and the guy on the desk wasn't wearing a mask. <laughs> That's ridiculous. 
So I did ring up and complain the next day. Yeah. And I know that's a responsible thing to do, but I also know most people wouldn't do that. And yeah. I know part of that is my be, be being a control... It's me being moral, but it's me being a control freak. Um, and on some level, it's a, mere, it's a fear of me being punished for not doing the right thing. Mm. And I'm pretty sure that the flat... You say apartment in Canada, don't you? The apartment downstairs was having a, a small party last night, yeah. which is... From the voices that were coming through the floorboards, uh, the spirited caterwauling, I'm pretty sure they're having some kind of party. Right. Um, and I thought, do I ring the police? I have done that kind of thing in, in the past. And I thought, no, I'm going to let it go. There's only so much I can do. Um, yeah. I'm not the world's policeman. Um, but I, it's something I wrestle with, you know, feelings of over-responsibility. Yeah, I, I, so what, what, what has helped you to sort of... To, because you you raise a very good point, Jeremy. This is like you know, if you didn't have OCD before, you might have uh, symptoms of it right now because of again all these messages that we're getting. So well, you're in a a heightened state of your your OCD. You're, you're sort of describing. Is that correct? Well, we are now worried about uh, a new generation of people developing OCD because of this right. pandemic. And interestingly enough, in the early days of the first lockdown. Um, I did quite a few interviews uh, for like Channel 4 News and BBC because they latched onto this. Like, you know, what if you've got OCD? What if you've already got contamination? Or what if you just have a, uh, a disposition or a propensity towards that and, and it hasn't been fully realised yet? Is it, is it going to act like a catalyst in the same way that the HIV fear in the 80s, which is mm. what happened to me? You have these very ominous government adverts with, uh, yeah. you know, lightning and, and a big monolith and, and these predictions every family in the country would be affected by the year 2000 and i was just hitting puberty at the time and right. there were all these things like oh you can get it from kissing somebody or you can yeah. get it from a, uh shaking somebody's hand because nobody really knew yes um so that was one of the first ocd things i ever latched onto, and i think the same is probably going to happen now with uh, a new generation with covid um especially children right like yeah, yeah. you know kids are getting these messages and Again, you know, I work with children, right? And so you, you kind of see, like, there's some fears around, like, all you got to do is just wash your hands. Because when I was younger, I washed my hands so much that my knuckles bled. Because mm. I was, I, 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 you know, I had perhaps, you know, looking back in reflection, I would say that, that I did have some OCD tendencies, which maybe is why I'm, I'm able to hyper-focus on some of the things that I do. And just not hyper focus on some of the other things, but anyways, talk to my wife about that. But um, the other thing is, is what is what has helped you sort of to to combat this? Like, what is? Well, I think what has helped me is support groups and speaking to like minded people. We did have one. Uh, we had a session with a guy called Dr. Paul Salkovskis, who's uh, one of the leading OCD clinicians. He's now based in Oxford. But we had an online session with him about COVID and his advice was do what, do what the government's telling you, do what the medical practitioners tell you, but do no more. And it sounds really obvious. Right. Um, but he also said, I'm not expecting miracles in this pandemic. Um, but the main thing is don't let it get worse. Just three words he said. Um, I'm just going, he said, hold the line. Uh, mm. Just at least don't don't backtrack. Don't let your OCD get worse. Just hold the line. And that was a really useful phase um, that I've actually, actually my girlfriend did this for me. She wrote it on a piece of card, which I have next to my computer. 
<laughs> yeah. Hold the line. Yeah. Um, and whenever I, my brain starts to spiral, I just look at that. Yeah, hold the line. Just, okay, not expecting perfection here. Just don't let it go any further, you know. Uh, but it's easier said than done. Um, I have good days and bad days. Generally, um, in recent years, my OCD has been a lot better. But as I say, this this right. pandemic has brought certain things up up to the fore again. What what a setback! But again, the importance of yeah, holding the line. What what has really helped me is, you know, because I I live with a, a a child that essentially dictates my life. So when when my kid goes to bed, I try to make time to sort of meditate because I'm on my phone all the time. And, and like I was saying to, uh, to Graham, I feel like my, my brain is hurting sometimes because of the mm. screen time I'm getting. So I try to make, make half an hour. And, mm. you know, and, and when I say this, I, I try to do it daily. Yeah. Okay. I'm doing it once a week, but anyways, when I do it right, it is really helpful. And that's half an hour of just silence. And I just try to focus on my breathing and I, I actually find afterwards that, you know, it's almost like my ideas are coming together. So that, that has really helped me. Now, last question, because I can't believe we're about to run out of time again. So social drinking in, in, in Oxford and uh, Britain in general, is, yes. it, is it similar to, because so, Graham, you've actually been to, uh, to Western Canada. Is it similar to social yeah. drinking here? So let me just explain. Right now I'm doing dry February. Uh, and yeah, I know shame, shame on me. Right. And it's the shortest month of the year. Of course I'm doing it during February, but I have found, yeah, I, I have found that it's, it's been quite helpful because I love beer. Like I am a, I love beer. And, and in my podcast, I talk about how in my twenties, I was the world's greatest partier, but now I I've, you know, I've subdued it. So when I was in my twenties, social drinking was me acting like a, idiot whereas what i'm picking up in oxford the culture around sort of social drinking is you guys go to a pub to meet with your friends and you're sitting down and you're kind of talking sort of thing it's it's a little bit slower paced yeah i i, I mean I, I think there's a big difference there's an age difference as well i mean when right. there's middle-aged men you know what i mean that's some you know um and um, i grew up with friends or german i would meet and we'd have a beer and we'd talk you know we, and it's it is very social thing but I, but I, um, I remember when I was a youngster, and I can see it reflected in, you, you know, you go out and it was all about getting hammered, and yeah. you know, it was all, uh, um, and I, I, you know, I think so in a way, sort of plus a change, you know, nothing, nothing is different, you know, across across the generations, and yeah. um, just getting um, rinsed. Yeah, and you see, we do have a drink. We have a drink problem in this country. Definitely, we have a drink right. problem. Oh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Uh, actually, yeah, absolutely. one of one of the one of the peak groups of middle aged men. Middle-aged, middle-aged, middle-aged white men uh, are on the rise. Uh, Young people, twenty-five percent of young people in this country don't drink now. So maybe, maybe it's all going backwards. Uh, I I remember hearing this radio phone once about um, about problem drinking, and the presenter saying, "Do we have a a drink problem in this country?" Said, "We have a work problem," Mm -hmm. and what they meant was we work the, the longest hours in Europe. And so the whole of our focus is on getting to the weekend and this big pressure valve release. Everybody goes out on a Friday night and goes crazy. Yeah. Um, so we don't drink in a measured way like they do in parts of the continent. Um, like we, don't, we don't have a glass of wine yeah. with a meal. We, we drink... Um... <laughs> yeah. 
I'm going to say mayor culpa because um, I was talking to some of my, uh, my, my the old guys I used to work with. Um, um, one of the guys said, oh, God, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of drinking too much, basically, because it comes to 7 o'clock at night and I'm thinking, I'm going to make some dinner for us all. For, you know, And then and next thing you know, you've had two beers out of the fridge and a bottle of wine has just evaporated during the, <laughs> of the evening. You know, what happened there? And, and then you think, um, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And I, I, I sort of buy my wine on this subscription service that, you know, we can buy, you, you know, sort of, and it appears again like Amazon. It's wonderful. Appears by magic, you know, a big case of wine appears on the doorstep. And I went right into the, my sort of back kitchen the other day and sort of, and someone had broken in in the night and drunk and drunk all. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, what happened there? And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's too easy to sit. Oh, I'm just, you know, I'll finish work for the day, whatever I'm going to sit right. with. And, um, and yeah, definitely. It, yeah. it is still very much part of the social fabric, though, in Britain, meeting up at the pub and going for a drink. I think Oxford, again, is quite exceptional. It's it's a fairly civilised place and the pubs can be quite sedate and cosy, you know, roaring fires and timber beams and mm. books on the wall. But if you go to most towns around Britain on a Saturday night, if you go to the high street, it's often pandemonium and, it, you know, people falling over, people having fights, police transit vans running, um, particularly among, well, it has, as I say, it has been young people, that seems to be turning now, but yeah, um, we have a drinking, I think it's a very North European thing as well, and I think it's something to do with being in a cold climate, I mean, it almost feels... Well, it's constant growth. I mean, look at Ireland. That Ireland's very similar. Big drinking. Ireland and Scotland, huge drinking right. cultures. Um, grey skies and, and you know, barren landscape. Well, it's like, it's kind of like... You feel justified I... in having a, a Guinness and a whiskey chaser. Exactly. Well, it's like if I show you what my, my backyard looks like, it's like, you know, it's wet and dank, and it's like, well, what else is there to do? Might as well have a bunch yeah, that, of scotch. There is that. There is there's that allure, you know, the alcohol right. bubble. Well, I've got, I've got to tell you my Vancouver story, actually. Oh, yes, I, please do. We went down to one of the local brewery pubs. I can't remember what it was called. Well, I don't know where they ever wrote it down anywhere. And it was brilliant. It was the first time in my life I'd ever had beers. You know where they, they give you a little taste? Yeah, of the, the flights. Beer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't with you. I have had that, Jeremy, where they, they you know, if you go oh. to a brewery, and they give you fantastic. Yeah. You guys come here, that, yeah. and, and I will I will show you good beer. We no Canadians have amazing beer. Don't drink Canadian. That's oh, yeah. bullshit. That's bullshit. No, yeah. you drink oh, yeah. IPAs, and yeah, yeah yesterday oh, I, I love I, a pale ale. Oh, that's man. my tipple pale ale. If you if you are a beer drinker, this is this is your mecca. Yeah, it was fantastic. <laughs> but I hurt myself quite badly because um, when I was talking to the the guy who was waiting on us, and I said, "Oh, that is lovely," and I'll have a pint of that. It turned out to be eight percent. Whereas. <laughs> About the, the most you're going to get is five percent. So I was feeling, I was feeling very sorry for myself the next morning. You know, and oh, so, yeah. you know, it was uh, it was uh, it was a bit bit of self indulgence. But I was I was misled by the uh, by thinking it was all going to be sort of four or five percent. It was <laughs> it was, uh, it was very much stronger. You know, it was, uh, yeah. some of the beers here you need a fork and a knife. <laughs> so guys. Thank you so much for uh, for being on right. here, um, I, man. I've had a blast. Uh, time has has it's escaped me. So thank you so much for being on. Um, wow. Stay healthy. Stay I really safe. Really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah, great.
Good. Awesome. So we'll listen to the rest of your interviews, uh, Rob, and see uh, around the world. And I think it's a great idea, actually. And more power to your elbow. Yeah. Well, well thank you very much, guys. Okay, well, okay. we'll keep in touch. Okay, take care. Once again, that was Graham Fry and Jeremy Allen of Oxford Lives Podcast. I uh, had a great time talking with those guys. It was 7.30 a.m. when I was speaking with them, and it was uh, later in the afternoon for them. And uh, just that conversation, man, I had a good time. I, uh, I almost wanted to be having a pint while I was talking with them. Um, one thing that really stood out to me was when Graham had mentioned, you know, here we are all talking about what we think is going on and we're in our own echo chamber. And it just kind of brought to, to light this idea of, you know, okay, well, we exit one cave. We think we've had this divine revelation that we know it all and oh, we're so smart. Uh, and we exit that cave only just to really be in another one. And, you know, there's always orchestrations. There's always things going on that we have to have an open mind. And, uh, yeah, so I, I so value, uh, everything that they've shared and, uh, man, I, I, I hope I get to work with those guys again in the future. Be sure to check out Oxford, uh, Oxford lives. Um, and, and another thing that I learned about, you know, honing my craft is the importance of doing your homework. So I listened to the episode where they interviewed each other. And I was getting so many good bits, so many jewels on things that I'm like, oh, yeah, I want to talk about that. So, yeah, moral of the story, do your homework and uh, you're going to get something good out of life. So hope you enjoyed that episode. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. Thank you again for listening. I'm Robert Grant, and I'm probably wrong about everything.